beyond reasonable doubt. I'm guessing you've heard that phrase before. I've heard it countless times on TV dramas, cop shows, that sort of thing. And it carries this sense that a verdict can be reached when sufficient evidence has been presented and weighed and considered by people. That given all of the knowledge available, it would require more imagination to believe the opposite when something is beyond reasonable doubt. And we've heard the phrase as well, and some doubted lurking in the background over the past two months as we've gathered together and we've listened week by week to the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28 says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you spot it? Lurking there, partway between the worship and the instructions. Doubts. Some doubted. A lot of ink has been spilt over these doubts. Was it all 11 disciples gathered there who doubted, or just some of them? Was it them who doubted at all, or was it a larger crowd that was gathered there? What was it that they doubted? I even listened to someone this week who suggested it was themselves that they doubted. They doubted in their ability to fulfil the Great Commission. Well, I doubt that interpretation, but there we go, each to their own. The honest truth is we don't know. We don't know exactly who it was who was doubting or indeed what it was they were doubting. And if anyone suggests to you that they know for certain, then regard them with a pinch of salt. Actually, plenty of times in the scriptures, things are left mysterious for us. Things are left ambiguous for us so that they can be more useful and profitable to us, even though our circumstances don't match theirs exactly. And so having these doubts recorded here, but not specified, I think is helpful for us. The blanks aren't filled in so that we might benefit if the filling in of our blanks are different from the filling in of their blanks. And yes, before we go any further, let's just say it. We all do. We all will. We all have had doubts, questions when it comes to life and faith and everything in between. And if you haven't yet, well, let me say you are the odd one out in this conversation. And one of the things our doubts weirdly can do to us is make us feel dirty or ashamed or somehow second class in our faith. We feel like lesser Christians because we have these questions that are unanswered so far, or answers that no longer satisfy us, or just a general sense of unease around a particular topic, or something like that. We feel ashamed or condemned by having those questions and feeling this way. But why? Why do we 
feel that way? Why do we approach questions and doubts with that sense of negativity? In fact, doubt, questions play a massive part in the scriptures that we rely on. It isn't just a, a throwaway comment here um, by Matthew to set the scene as Jesus gives his final instructions, but doubts and questions play a massive part of the whole of our scriptures. Think about the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms we regard, we speak about often as being a place that we go for refreshment, a place we go for encouragement, a place we go to give voice to our praise and our worship, is actually a place that is filled with questions. It's a book that is filled with doubts. Here's a, here's a, question, uh, a quote that I heard this week. I thought it was wonderful. Uh, somehow in God's providence, people's words doubting God have become God's words to doubting people. You look at the book of Psalms, Psalm 73, Psalm 77, so on and so forth, and they are filled with people who are questioning God, who are doubting their life and their previously held beliefs. Or if you wanted just to concentrate in the Gospel of Matthew, where we find the Great Commission and this particular scene of doubting, doubts haven't here appeared out of the blue. We have in the Gospel of Matthew and in the other Gospels the story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the one who recognised Jesus even when they were both still in the womb. The one whom Jesus spoke of and said that there isn't a greater human being than John the Baptist. He had doubts about Jesus. You know when he was in prison? When he was uh, facing the prospect of losing his life, he sent some of his own followers to go and to ask and to question Jesus, are you really the one who is to come? Are you really the one who I was living before, preparing a way for? He had doubts. Or famously, Peter, Peter the Rock, the one on whom Jesus said he would build his church, the one who, out of all the disciples, had the courage and the boldness, first of all, to stand up and say, you are the Messiah. Do you remember the story of him? Out on the boat in the storm, Jesus walking on the water, Jesus inviting Peter out onto the water, Peter himself walking on top of the waves, but then he doubts. He doubts what's happening. He doubts Jesus and he begins to sink and Jesus has to rescue him. Or even if we just look at the Great Commission, you know, these doubts must have been expressed in some way for Matthew to write the detail in. And so doubts do play a massive part of the scriptures and we shouldn't be ashamed of them or afraid of them in the context of our own Christian lives or in the context of the church. But what is doubt when you really think about it? Nagging questions and uncertainty in ourselves. I think a good way of understanding doubt is when there is a distance between what we're experiencing and what we think when our lives and our emotions and our circumstances don't measure up or match up with certain things that we think we know are true. 
And so doubts can exist for a number of reasons. Not all doubts are equal, shall we put it like that? Perhaps we doubt because we lack all of the information. Perhaps we doubt sometimes because we've believed or taken on board some sort of misinformation. Or maybe our doubts are a result of us being fearful that the information that we have leads us somewhere we don't want to go. Consider, for example, a doubt over Jesus really rising from the dead. Did Jesus really rise to true life again from the dead? You could doubt that. Perhaps you do doubt that. Perhaps you have doubt that. Perhaps that question has never come up. And now that I've mentioned it, it's there and it's lodged in your brain and it's one you're going to be asking. Well, you could doubt the reality, the validity of Jesus's rising to life again from death because you lack all the information. No one has ever shared with you the overwhelming evidence that that really happened, the, the, the changed lives of the disciples, the, um, the number of references and um, corroborating evidence from different sources that we have, the fact that there is no um, evidence that a body was ever found or presented and that all of the other explanations don't hold water. And so you doubt because you just haven't had all of the information yet. When you seek that information, when you find that information, well, then the question goes away. The distance shortens between what you know and what you're living. On the other hand, you could be doubting the reality of the resurrection, Jesus is rising to life again, because you've heard someone say something that's untrue and you've believed that. For example, it's been suggested um, that the idea of Jesus rising to life again was something that was invented years, centuries down the line and added to the gospel accounts. People make that sort of proclamation, but it's not true. The, the fact of the matter is that the very earliest records, even letters written by Paul within a lifetime of those who had witnessed the resurrection, contain the the important news that Jesus truly rose to life again. And while people might spread misinformation elsewhere, you needn't believe in those. So you might doubt because you've heard something that isn't true, that it's actually a lie. Or you might doubt the third reason because you don't really like where that truth leads. You haven't heard any lies about Jesus's resurrection. You might have heard someone like myself or Jamie waxing lyrical about the evidence for the resurrection, but it still doesn't sit right with you because you don't like where it leads. You don't like where it implies. If he rose, he must be who he said he was, and that must mean that there is a God of heaven to whom we are each answerable to. And you don't like that idea. See, our doubts can come from lots of different places. You could put it like this. Sometimes we're just oblivious, and that's why we have our questions. Sometimes we're confused, and that's why we have our questions. Sometimes we're just weak, unwilling, unable to follow the evidence where it leads. This morning, I just want to quickly run over some suggestions of what we should do when we doubt. 
of how we should proceed when we have questions that we feel like we can't find sensible or reasonable answers for. And I'm going to suggest that we do two things, two, three things. Firstly, don't hide those questions. Secondly, question our own assumptions. And thirdly, come to him who is the truth. Firstly, don't hide those questions. All the examples I've kind of given you this morning of, of those people in the books of the book of Psalms, of John the Baptist, of Peter, of these disciples gathered here, they are all proof that shoving it down, trying to put a lid on it and live life and pretend as if we have no doubts and we have no questions is not really an option. You might have been advised really poorly in the past just to have faith. There are some things that we just need to close our eyes and to have faith about. Well, let me tell you, someone who suggests that's a reasonable way forward doesn't truly know what faith is. What they mean is that we need to just have a larger imagination. We just need to be able to make something more up in our mind. Because faith is not the absence of reason. Faith is not the absence of thought. Faith is reason and thought that is able to go beyond appearances. The Bible never calls us, um, invites us to turn off our minds and to shut our eyes and blindly believe. No, it's a book of evidence. It's a book of truth that can be received and weighed and responded to. And so the first thing I would say when it comes to doubts and questions in our own lives and in the life as the church, that we should be willing to ask these questions. We should be open about them. We should have enough confidence and faith already in Jesus as the truth to be able to bring our questions and to find suitable answers. But in so doing, we need to, step two, be willing to question our own assumptions to be willing to question the knowledge that we think that we already have. If there is a distance between our experience, our existence, our emotions, and the things that we think we know are true, then obviously there's a missing piece. Perhaps we've believed something falsely. Perhaps we've assumed something that we needn't or shouldn't have assumed. You know, honestly, as Christians, we can cause ourselves a lot of pain, a lot of anguish, a lot of heartache and soul searching when we come to God's word and we make massive assumptions about it and its content. And we're wrong on those assumptions. The distance isn't between us and what God declares, but us and what we think God should be declaring, perhaps. Our doubts are because we're standing on shaky ground. And it isn't any wonder sometimes that we feel motion sick. You know, if we're willing to come and to ask our questions, usually big questions, usually important questions that we feel them of God, then we need to be willing to have those answers reveal something about us, something found wanting and lacking in us. If you really have doubts, then come with them. Ask them loudly, but humbly. Humbly willing to accept that perhaps 
there's something missing in our knowledge or our desires. And that is why we feel the way we do. But thirdly, and I have to say most importantly, if we've done those first two steps, then, then this is the one that brings it all together. You should bring your questions to him. Bring your doubts to him. Very often we find it easy and comfortable to lob questions, to lob problems, to lob situations at other people, at other believers. And, and, and feel a sense of, oh, I've won, I've won the day if they can't answer immediately the questions we have. Sometimes that's helpful. You might kind of come across someone who can calmly, coolly, helpfully respond and answer, spot the misinformation, spot where information is lacking, spot perhaps where you're unable to move and they can help you work through that great. That is wonderful when that happens. But our questions really are questions that need to be addressed to him, to the one who is truth, to our God in heaven. I mentioned Psalm 73. Go away, have a read of Psalm 73. It's a wonderful psalm of someone who believed something about God and whose life seemed to be teaching him something different. It's, it's a wonderful psalm of being open and honest about the struggle that that produced, the friction in their own lives. But it's also a wonderful psalm that shows us that this person was willing to, to come into the temple, to bring these doubts and these questions and these frustrations into the presence of God in order to find their answers. Think of John the Baptist there, stuck in prison, confused about how Jesus would be the one coming after, who would restore the kingdom, who would fix all things, who would conquer and defeat the enemies. And he sat there in prison and he is facing death. What does he do with that? He sends people to go and question Jesus, not to stew in it on his own in his prison cell but to go and to find out and to hear from Jesus himself. What about Peter walking there on the water if you've heard the story taught you'll have heard it taught you know that he has his eyes fixed on Jesus but then he takes his eyes off Jesus he looks at the waves he looks at the sea beneath him he looks in at himself and he begins to sink well where does he turn in his doubt in his in his drama he calls out to Jesus, Jesus, rescue me. And what about these disciples here in Matthew 28, up on the mountain, worshipping and doubting? Well, they're there. Doubts and all, they have gathered, they have come to Jesus to listen to what he has to say. And, and there can really be no greater lesson for us than this. That when we have our questions, we should be diligent, we should do our study, we should be open and honest about them with one another. We might be able to serve one another and help one another and pick one another up. But the very one thing that we have to do is bring our questions, bring our doubt, bring the friction that exists in our lives to him. Bring them to him. Be open and honest. Most first and foremost, with him, the one who is truth. Let me give another example of the sort of 
doubt that we have, the sort of question that we have that comes up periodically for each of us. And it's, it's the doubt that springs from suffering. We, we think that God is good, that God is loving and kind, that he wants what's best for us. We intuit that and scripture reveals that to us. We think that God is powerful, all-powerful, able to do anything that he wants and wills. We intuit that and scripture declares that for us. And yet we sit in a world that is full of brokenness, a world that is full of suffering, a world that is full of pain and hurt and tears and hunger and thirst and death. And we say, Lord God, if you are good, if you are powerful, you would and you should have done something about this. Can you relate to that sort of question, to that sort of doubt? Well, let's work through the pattern that I've suggested this morning. The first thing is don't shove it down. Ask the question. You won't be the first person to ask it. You won't be the last. Church history is littered with people who have honestly and heart-wrenchingly tackled that question. The Bible and its authors is full of people who have lived in that very dissonance. Uh, the, 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 the kind of the pull in the two directions of what they're experiencing and what they've come to believe is true about God. They've asked, they, people, Christians have asked and struggled with that question. They've decided not to put a lead on it and shove it down, but to bring it out into the light to see if an answer can be found. And in so doing, very often it means, number two, challenging some of the assumptions that they have. The assumptions expressed are that God is good and kind and loving, that God is powerful. I don't suggest that those need to be uh, challenged. But the assumption is also this, that just because we can conceive of a way of God putting things right, that, that he must do it our way, that our best way should be God's best way. Do you see what I mean by that? God's plan to solve the problem needs to be our plan to solve the problem. Well, that needn't be the case, neither. That is an assumption that we are making. And when we think about it, it's a pretty faulty, pretty flawed assumption that we limited as we are, that we um, twisted very often uh, as we are, that we selfish as we are, would know and, and, and conceive of the best way to fix all things. We need to concede that God is a God of wisdom, that God is a God of knowledge, and that his ways are the best ways. Moreover, we need, to, we need to grapple with the reality that if we sort of genuinely follow through with that doubt and say that God cannot be because suffering has disproved him, we need to then say, well, does that version of life and the world require more or less imagination than believing that God is dealing with things in a different way? You know, if you remove God from the picture as some would have us do, well then, where are you? You're left in a world where you cannot be bothered or outraged by suffering because good and bad and, and, and pain and, and, and joy are just abstract ideas that we've invented. That requires a lot more imagination to live in that world 
than to wrestle genuinely with the idea that God is a God who is good, who is powerful, who is working things out, just not in the way that we would prescribe. So challenge your own assumptions. And then lastly, look to Jesus. I've got this question about pain and hurt and suffering. Do I find answers in him? Do I find answers in you? And overwhelmingly, the picture, the portrait we have of Jesus in the scripture is of one whose desires exactly line up with ours. Yes, he wants to have an end to pain and suffering and hurt. He says that he is working towards a world where all tears and death and grief and scorching heat are done away with. But more than that, he is one who came and himself suffered. He is the one who came and himself succumbed to pain and suffering. To my mind, the bigger question has always been not why does God allow suffering, but why does God endure suffering? Yes, we can conceive of him waving his magic wand, clicking his fingers and it all being put right, but here's what God has determined to do. It's to enter in and to suffer for us and with us on the path to pain-free existence, as it were. That's how I see we should deal with our doubts. Ask them openly, honestly, don't shove them down. Challenge some of our assumptions and our thinking that may be faulty or may be lacking, but to look to Jesus as one who can supply full and satisfying answers. And let me finish with a quick word on how we interact with and how we should deal with not our own doubts, but those around us who doubt. Because perhaps this morning it isn't you that's doubting, but someone who is near to you who is doubting and struggling. Listen to Jude. Jude was one of Jesus's own doubting brothers. And this is what he said. Have mercy on those who doubt. Where do you think Jude had learned that way of living, of dealing tenderly and carefully and mercifully with those with questions and doubts whose faith are wavering? I can only assume that Jude had learned that from Jesus himself. You see, Jude was one of Jesus's brothers. And if you read the Gospels, you'll find out that his family, Jesus's family, didn't believe the claims that he was making at first. They doubted him when he stood up and proclaimed that he was bringing with him the kingdom of God. They doubted him when he said that those who followed him would find life and life abundantly. They doubted him. But Jude did come to believe. He wrote one of the letters in the New Testament. He was someone who, who spent his own life after Jesus's life and death and resurrection and ascension hoping to encourage others into following Jesus through faith. He did come to believe, and his own counsel was that we should show mercy to those who doubt for whatever reason they doubt, because he had been shown mercy by Jesus. In Matthew 28, this great commission, when those who would worship and those who doubted came close by to Jesus, not a million miles away from one another, what does Jesus do? He deals with them one and the same. He deals with them tenderly and lovingly and mercifully. 
That's the Jesus who we come to with all of our questions. And so my encouragement to you, dear church, is if those aren't your doubts today, they may be tomorrow, but perhaps there is someone that we can show mercy and love and kindness to as they wrestle with their own questions. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who desires us to find answers, that you are a God who desires us to move into greater certainty about the things that we have believed. Lord, help us not to be a people of pure imagination, people who just shut our eyes and believe things blindly, but who follow the information, the knowledge that you have shared. Follow it wherever it may lead. Give us confidence, Lord, to ask our questions. Give us humility to challenge our own assumptions. But Lord, give us those eyes, those gazes that are fixed on Jesus, that want to find our answers in him. We know that you're a God who deals tenderly, who deals mercifully with those who need it. And we pray that you would make us likewise a people who invite questions and help lead others into all truth. Lord, thank you for your spirit, which Jesus sent to dwell amongst us and dwell in us, and he promised would lead us into all truth. Spirit, do your work. Help us to be a people who ask our questions and find our answers in him. Amen.